lesson we see is in the book of Lamentations. And look at Lamentations chapter 3. That's Jeremiah, the weeping priest. So Jeremiah, uh, Lamentations 3 is, um, Lamentations is a powerful book of poems. Yeah. Uh, the third chapter is the most famous of the Lamentations in this book. And uh, it's an acrostic poem means that um, each of the verses begins with um, a letter of the Hebrew alphabet in order. So verses 1, 2, and 3 begin with Aleph, oh, okay. verses 4, 5, and 6 begin with Bet, okay. uh, and, and so on through um, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So you can see that it's structured in threes for that reason, okay. and then you've got 66 verses because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, three verses for each letter it's a carefully structured poem um, and it's a poem about suffering in historically what's happened is that god's people israel have been taken into captivity jerusalem has been um, invaded occupied and the people are suffering and this is the cry of the people the author of lamentations writes on behalf of god's people it starts with i am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath this is what he attributes to god I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. That's how he's describing what God is doing. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me, again and again, all day long. Not Satan, but God. Uh, and after many verses of reflecting on the suffering of the people, um, he comes to verse 19. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. So he doesn't feel good. Mm. He's not saying that he feels good. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Yeah. But here is the lesson from Romans again, that the suffering uh, has produced, or at least has not destroyed, hope that the author has. Um, not because he feels good, he's not saying that he's happy, but he's not without hope. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope, because of the Lord's great love. We are not consumed. For his compassion never fails. Yeah. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And here in verse 24, I think, is the theological center of Lamentations and a very succinct description of the lesson of suffering in the Bible. I say to myself, the Lord, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. What the author is left with, he's not left with physical health, he's not left with any wealth, he's not left with um, any land. Mm -hmm. All of the things that he had taken pride in are stripped away, they're gone, and he is suffering. And so what's left is God alone. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. That's a lesson that we can't truly learn until we have nothing else. Yeah, actually, that's true. I, I, I will always be tempted to, to want to value find my identity in or uh, 
to see as God's goodness in my life, the things that he gives me. Mm-hmm. Health, provision, family, career, ministry. And those aren't bad things. It's not bad to want those things. It's not bad to pray for those things. But there is a deep lesson that I can learn when I have nothing yeah. but God. Yeah. Or when my suffering makes me feel like I have nothing but God. In, in those situations, I have an opportunity to learn a lesson that nothing else can teach me. And here, the author of Lamentations expresses it. The Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. I personally can relate to this because I've been at that point where I felt like I have no one. Even if there were so many around me, but it felt like everything that I had was, it couldn't, I mean, they just couldn't fit. I mean, they couldn't do anything. Mm. They were worthless. I mean, uh, I turned around and it felt like I was, it was just me. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, God, what can I do? I mean, you're the only one I could turn to. And the only thing I could feel in my spirit then was, now you learn to trust me. And I think it's that moment where you realize it's only God you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So if we're summarizing here, what is it that, 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 that we get from suffering? What's the benefit from suffering? Well, as James and Paul have described, there's a kind of maturity, uh, character, hope that's produced in us in suffering. And then as we see in James and or in Job and Lamentations, there's this realization, this lesson about seeking God. Yeah. Uh, that suffering shapes our souls. It focuses our souls mm-hmm. to want God above everything else. Yeah. And that's a valuable lesson. Mm-hmm. Uh, God has designed the world so that it is God-centered. And if I can want God above everything else, mm-hmm. it's better for me. Yeah. My perspective can be in line with God's perspective. I can be participating in deeper ways in the things that he's doing in the world. If I can have God's mindset, God's priorities about the world around me, that includes wanting God for God's self, mm-hmm. not just for the things that God can give to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a, a valuable benefit of suffering. I think that's a kind of the kind of thing that can't come in any other way. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes, I, like I said, it, it's more about taking, changing the perspective, mm-hmm. uh, not seeing it as oh, I'm being punished for this, or this is this is God against me. But as we see in Lamentations here, he says God is doing all this to him, mm-hmm. but yet he says, "This I call to mind. Yeah. I have hope because of God's love." We're not going to. Yeah. So if we're able to just remember this, I mean, internalize this, that through this, what we are supposed to see here, God is everything we need. Yeah. And also see that it is working. I mean, yeah, I mean, like you just said, looking at personal experiences, when we look back and we realize the times that we went through, went through, I mean, worst moments, and now we're become even stronger. Mm-hmm. And we look back and we're like, nah, I've gone through this before. Yeah, I'm better than this now, and I've grown beyond this now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, although I think sometimes we, uh, yeah, that's true. And, and spiritual growth, I think you can describe it rather than just like this straight line. Oh, you know, time, maturity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it, it, we, we, we most of us don't experience growth in that kind of linear way, but rather in this it's kind of a spiral. Sure. So that keeps going back. Yeah, so if you imagine spiritual growth as a moving toward the center through this spiral, mm. uh, and then across that spiral are 
the lines that represents kind of the lessons that I have to learn, lessons about perseverance, lessons about purity, lessons about patience, or lessons about humility. Mm -hmm. um, and I might come across a situation which teaches me something about that lesson, but I'm going to come back around to that same same lesson. Mm -hmm. I, I'm different because I've moved closer to the center, mm -hmm. but the same issue is going to face me again. Mm -hmm. uh, and in that way, I, I shouldn't think about myself, well, I've already, uh, I've already gotten those lessons about perseverance, so mm -hmm. uh, I don't need to learn them anymore. Uh, no, I probably do. Uh, it's going to come back in another form. Yeah. Again, repeat yeah. itself again. Yeah. Um, one of the, in our church, he was coming to that work, the logo comes with a circle, and mm -hmm. it's, the idea was that it doesn't end. Mm -hmm. So your growth, because one of the visions of the church is growing, but the growth continues in a circle. Yeah. As far, I mean, it just yeah. keeps going on, it never stops. Yeah. That's amazing, actually. So, so for as long as we go through life, there'll be suffering. Yeah. Yep. That's why. Although suffering is, is is also temporary. Yeah, it is. Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, I, was it Romans eight eighteen says uh, for uh, I reckon that the sufferings of our present time cannot be compared to the glory that will be in us. Is it Romans? Yeah, it's Romans eight eighteen. Well, okay. There's a similar verse here in Second Corinthians four, which mm -hmm. I wanted to look at as well. Second mm -hmm. Corinthians four. Um, I said there was three examples that came to mind. Uh, we looked at Job, looked at Lamentations, and the third one was Second Corinthians four, um, as we describe concretely what do we get out of suffering, in what ways are we benefiting from the suffering that we experience? Paul writes a lot about suffering. And he understands the suffering that he experiences as a result of his ministry to be part of God's plan for his life. And he gives us a picture of how he thinks God is incorporating it both into God's plan for the nations and also into God's plan for Paul. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing this letter in part to address this group of counterfeit apostles who are... Um, putting themselves forward as better examples and disparaging the ministry of Paul, saying that Paul isn't uh, a real apostle, that they are the real ones. Yeah. So Paul spends some time in his letter outlining a, a theology of ministry so that he gives a description of what he thinks true ministry is so that his readers can distinguish between the genuine ministry and the counterfeit versions of Paul's detractors. And chapter 4 is Paul's most succinct description of his theology of ministry. We get in chapter 4 uh, what Paul thinks about ministry, and he focuses in this chapter on motives, especially motivations for ministry. Uh, so he, he begins by talking about suffering, and suffering is the theme that's woven all throughout Paul's description of his theology of ministry. So he says, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart that we don't have this ministry because of something great that we have done, but rather because God is good and is merciful and has decided to gift us with the privilege of serving. Uh, you do not deserve to be a pastor. Uh, I don't deserve to be a pastor. It's not some badge that we have earned by being good enough. It is a gift of God, Paul says, since it's through God's mercy we have this ministry. We do not lose heart. And um, and then Paul goes on to describe 
suffering. So chapter or verse seven of that chapter, he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And the jar of clay that he's talking about there is like a money bank. Yeah, we are the jar of clay. And he's using this metaphor of a money bank, the kind of clay bank that you see here in Cyprus. Uh, you see them in many places in the world. I grew up with ceramic versions of them here. There's these clay jars with one slit in the top. Put the money in, and there's no other hole. If you want to get the money out, you have to break the jar. And that's Paul's point here in the passage. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the self-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. So he's going to talk now for the next several verses about the suffering that the believers endure in their faithfulness to Jesus, especially those who are engaged in ministry. We have the treasure in jars of clay. And Paul's point in this chapter is to say that some treasure can only be revealed when the jar is broken. That the value of the gospel, the treasure of the gospel is revealed when the minister suffers for it. We have this treasure in jars of clay. He says, so we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. And Paul is saying we suffer, but it does not end us. Um, his point is that the treasure is revealed when the jar is broken. Now in in, um, in 2007, I was serving in Malatya, eastern Turkey, where three of our colleagues were murdered for their faith. They were tied to their desk chairs, they were tortured with knives, their throats were slit, they were really murdered. It was an awful, tragic event. It was the most awful thing that I have ever uh, endured in terms of experiencing the suffering of my friends and having to read about it and um, having known these men as friends and colleagues and um, witnessed the suffering of their families. And, uh, and at the same time, in the days and weeks and months and years after those events, we could see the truth of these verses unfolding, that the people of Malatya and the people of Turkey were confronted with this reality that there were Turkish neighbors, men and women around them, who were willing to suffer for their faith as Christians. That these weren't opportunists, these weren't people trying to win something or trying to get some advantage from uh, Christians, but these were people who had found something in Jesus and who were willing to die for it, willing to suffer for it. And that uh, that changed the way that the Turkish uh, media talked about Christians ever since then. Mm. Uh, so Paul unpacks that a bit more. He says in verse 10, we always carry around in our bodies the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. And here Paul is talking about the way that believers every day choose a life of daily dying. We choose a life of being, as he says elsewhere, being crucified with Christ. We choose to daily die, to carry around in our body the death of Jesus by dying to our sinful nature. We have to struggle with it, we've got to deal with it, we've got to choose the death of Jesus every day. We carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. It's by choosing the life of daily dying, of sac being um, uh, sacrificed, being crucified, being dead to my sinful nature that I experience the resurrection of life of Jesus. And then in verse 11, for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. We who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Here he's talking about the actual, literal, physical persecution of believers face, yeah. especially those in ministry, as a result of preaching the gospel, 
so that his life may be revealed, it says, in our mortal body. So the life of Jesus is revealed. Mm. And believers are given over to death. Yeah. And that's the lesson that we saw unfolding there in Malatya. Mm. It didn't make the death of my friends something good. It was painful, yeah. But it did mean that God was able to bring about good and to use even that awful event for his glory mm-hmm. and for the benefit of the people that he loves. Yeah. <laughs> evil is, is still evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, then he sums it up in, 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 in verse 12. Is, so then death is at work in us. Right. Life is at work in work. Yeah. And Paul's talking about the us there are the ministers yes, yes, yes. and the you is the people that he's serving. Death is at work in us. Life is at work in you. So Paul incorporates this principle about suffering as part of his theology of ministry. We suffer because Jesus suffered. Mm-hmm. When we suffer the way that Jesus suffered, we also have the opportunity to experience resurrection life, and not just for us, but for the people that he's given us to serve. Even those who have died as a result of their faith, their death serves as a benefit to the people around them, the people that God loves and wants to save. Some treasure is only revealed when the jars broke. So we see these three things. Mm. God's ways of worship. Mm. He knows our portion. Mm. And his life is revealed. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's using he's using suffering to grow our souls and our characters. Mm. He's using suffering to teach us to want God above everything else. He's using suffering to reveal the value of the gospel and to bring the truth and the value of Jesus to the people around us, even through our suffering. Uh, and I think there's some, some other things that we could say about suffering, too. Maybe, maybe two more things um, that I would highlight here. One is that um, suffering does give us an occasion for repentance. Yeah. So I, I've said that the book of Job shows us that it's, we can't make a conclusion about people suffering, that they're sinful and that's why they've suffered. Yeah. They've done something bad to deserve the cancer that they got or mm. tragedy that befell their children or something. Mm. No, that's not the teaching of the Bible. Mm. Uh, and yet still, suffering turns us kind of inward. Mm-hmm. Um, gives us an occasion to look at our own lives mm. and to recognize that uh, in this fallen world, there is lots of suffering, and my fallen nature, my sinful nature, mm. is contributing to it. Yeah. Uh, so, even though I wouldn't want to say about any instance of suffering that it's, um, well, you, you, you must have sinned in order to suffer that way, that's just not true. Mm-hmm. It's also true that suffering gives us an occasion mm. to repent. We see that in, in Lamentations 3 as well. Of course, there are times when we suffer the consequences of our sin, which involves suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, we are punished for it, or even if it's just the guilt or the shame, mm-hmm. um, there is a sense of, na- of, of um, natural consequence for sin. Uh, but uh, in any kind of suffering, I think, Another benefit of suffering is that it gives us an occasion to recognize 
humbly recognize our mortality, to recognize our fallibility, and we recognize our sinfulness. And, uh, and we need that. I need that. I need a reminder uh, to be humble. I need a reminder to repent. A reminder that my life can sometimes contribute not to the transformation of the world, mm -hmm. but the corruption of it. Yeah. I don't want my life to contribute to the corruption of the world. Mm -hmm. So, that's something else I would say about suffering mm -hmm. uh, in terms of benefit. How do I benefit while well, suffering? Gives me an occasion for repentance. Yeah. And that's what the author of Lamentation says as well. What should we do about it? Well, let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven and say, We have sinned and rebelled. Mm -hmm. That sh sh should be our response. Let's lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven and say, We have sinned. Then one more thing, one more lesson, which is a different kind of lesson about suffering, and it comes from a Spanish mystic, um, 15th century guy called John of the Cross. Uh, he was a, a theologian and a brilliant poet, a writer, uh, a deep experience with God. He writes about it for us, in, um, especially in a work called The Dark Night of the Soul. And in his work, The Dark Night of the Soul, which is a poem, with his extended commentary on each stanza of the poem. And he writes in this poem that um, when we first come to Christ, we come for selfish reasons. We come because we're looking for hope or meaning in our lives or we're looking for a healing or we're looking for a way out of a bad situation. Um, and that's okay because God is gracious and he wants to welcome us that way. And in fact, he's hoping for us to turn to him in those situations. And when we do turn to God, our first experience of God is emotionally exciting. Mm -hmm. At least for many people, you know, John's description here, John of the Cross's description is not prescriptive. He's not telling us what we have to experience. He's just describing what he has experienced and many people throughout the centuries have related to this experience. I pray and it feels like I'm talking to God. Mm -hmm. And like he's listening, mm. and and the feeling makes me want to pray. Yeah. And I worship. I close my eyes, and I raise my hands, or I sing the songs, and it feels like he's close. He's right there with me. Mm. I feel his closeness, and so that makes me want to worship. Yeah. I read the Bible, and it feels like he's talking to me. His words, and it feels like he's speaking to me. How did he know that's what I needed to hear? Mm. And because it feels that way, it makes me want to read the Bible. And when I serve, it feels like he's pleased with me. I, I, I share the gospel with somebody, or I help my neighbor with something, and it feels like God is happy with me. And because it feels that way, it makes me want to serve more. So God is giving us those emotions as motivation to develop in us uh, those disciplines for things like prayer, worship, uh, study, and uh, ministry, or service. But um, God wants to teach our souls to do those things for better reasons, for deeper reasons. He doesn't want to leave us in that position of doing those things because it feels good. And there's nothing wrong with feeling good, but we don't want feeling good to be the reason why we worship. And so John says, just the same way that a mother weans her child from breastfeeding, God weans us off those emotions so that means that there's a time in our spiritual life when he removes those emotions. Yeah, and then we have to do this 
without the emotions. Yeah. You don't have to feel it to do it. Right. So now, and if you haven't experienced that in your life, your spiritual life, I, I think I can pretty reliably predict that you will <laughs> experience a season in your life. A season like what John calls the dark night of the soul. Yeah. When I pray and I worship, I read and I serve. I don't feel it. Yeah. yeah. I don't feel the same things that I felt. Yeah. It doesn't feel like he's listening. It doesn't feel like he's close. It doesn't feel like he's pleased. It doesn't feel like he's speaking to me. Uh, so I have to choose. Will I, will I keep doing those things, mm. or will I just give up? And uh, that's a that's a crossroads in my life. You know, if I'm if I'm going to keep doing those things, I've got to find better reasons to do them. Mm. It's going to have to be for better reasons, mm. for different reasons than just it feels good. Mm. And that's what John of the Cross says is the result of the dark night of the soul, that God brings us through this season mm. to train our souls, to teach us to do those things to worship, not because it feels good, but so that we can come to the same conclusion that show the same conclusion of the author of limitations that God is worthy of worship. He is worthy of worship. Yeah, the Lord is my portion. So maybe if you're experiencing a season of spiritual dryness, a season of lack of emotion in your spiritual life, um, all of the things that we've said might be relevant to you. you know, maybe this is an occasion to uh, repent. Of course, if I'm trying to protect my sin life, uh, that also is probably going to result in a clash between my emotions in worship and um, the things that I'm doing. There's going to be a clash between my inner life and my outer life. Mm -hmm. But um, but also, it may be that God is doing something in my life, mm -hmm. like the dark night of the soul, so that uh, the goal is not to try to fix it, to try to close my eyes tighter, lift my hands higher, sing a little louder, <laughs> uh, but rather to persevere. To continue to be faithful. And sometimes our churches are designed to whip up the emotional atmosphere for us because they want to equate a sensation of God's closeness with spiritual maturity. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And that's, a, that's an association I would want to resist. <laughs> uh, so that lesson of the dark night has been significant to me and it's been significant you know, to, to people that I've counseled about these kinds of things. How come I don't feel God's closeness or I feel like I'm in a spiritual dry time? Don't give up. I mean, it's like when I first initially got born again, it was all fired up. Anytime I'd pray, it was always something else. It was deep experience reading the Bible. Mm -hmm. And then after a short while, some years after, I wasn't feeling the same way again. And at some point, I almost felt, oh, God has left me. Am I doing something wrong? Mm -hmm. But I think I met someone who also shared that same idea with me. You don't have to feel anything. Mm -hmm. uh, you just have to continue what you've been doing. Mm -hmm. There's nothing, there's no, there's no difference. Yeah. God is not based on your feelings. Yeah. So you keep doing what you're doing. And I mean, it means that you're growing. That's what he told me. Though. He was like, it means you're growing. Yeah. You're not like a kid who's dependent on sensation. Mm -hmm. You just have to outgrow that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, we have seen that suffering builds a character, mm -hmm. shows us that God alone is worthy to be worshipped. Mm -hmm. He alone is our portion. And then we also see that when we do this, we reveal his glory in us to the world. Mm. And uh, like Ryan also mentioned, sometimes you don't have to feel it. Mm. And sometimes you feel that dryness, you think you've been punished for something, but that, that's God also dealing with you. Mm. For you to continue in persevering in those actions, those disciplines that you used to do, not basing them on your emotions or your feelings or sensations. Yeah. And one thing we know is growth never ends so there's never a time where you say i have matured and that's the end of it for as long as we're here it always keep going in that circle so yeah i hope this particular episode has blessed you you have uh, 
I'm not saying that God here likes to whip you, but suffering, we can take a different perspective to this and see suffering from a different life. We have hope. For this we know, and this we have, and we have hope that uh, He loves us and we're not going to. So I hope this episode blesses you. Share with a friend. I mean, sit down, talk about it. And if you have any question, comments, whatever topics you like us to talk about, just send to me or send on an email, comment on the YouTube channel or comment on Instagram, and we'll try to talk about it. So till then again, well, Ryan is going to come again definitely. <laughs> so I'll see you again in the next episode. Thank you very much and God bless you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I want to know